I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us John Gisham, ranger in charge at the Kurong National Park, and for another four days, um, president of Birds SA. Welcome, John. Yeah, thanks, guys. Nice to be back again. Nice to have you back, for sure. Now, last time we had you on, it's one of the earliest shows, guys, and it's worth going back and having a listen to, and we learned a lot about bird watching and some of the tricks and craft about, you called it not just bird watching, you used the term birding. listening. Listening, yeah, birding. Birding. It's inclusive. Yeah. yeah it includes people who might have uh, sight disabilities or whatever, um, and it allows them to listen to birds. So it's not just bird watching, you're birding. So, yeah. I think I was probably the second one, wasn't I? You were one of the very, very first first episodes. Yeah, I feel feel old. (laughs) (laughs) Mate, what have you been up to since we last caught up? I've been flat out. Well, I've been down the Curon as as the ranger in charge, and prior to that I was uh, a wetland officer with the NRM um, doing fish, which I always find a bit weird because I always look at fish as food for birds. So (laughs) So the fish people get a bit upset with that. So. But, yeah, then I was doing some, you know, bird surveys and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, been around, been overseas, back again. Sort of always busy, taking lots of photographs. Says it like Steve when he talks about mammals, the food for reptiles. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, well, then you I get... Was gonna, I'm glad you said that. I was going to say birds, but you're right. Yeah, mammals. <laughs> <laughs> so you did some photography overseas? Oh, uh, yeah, look, one of the things I do on the side uh, is I do a fair bit of art photography because my first career was a commercial photographer So I'm, and I went to art school and I also did a lot of art photography so I didn't do a, didn't do a lot of wildlife photography and then um, that sort of changed after about 20 years and, and I got into conservation after going back to uni and getting involved in professional conservation and then my photography sort of stayed with me so I kind of got into photographing birds a lot and, uh, and then recently, in the last few years, I've kind of really got seriously back into my art photography, you know, doing shooting film as well as digital, processing the film, scanning them. So a bit of an escape from the conservation uh, is doing art photography. So, And I've just bought out a new book, um, but it's got no birds in it. So, But it's, it's all of that sort of abstract sort of dream, surreal images, which have got a bit of an environmental message, I guess, if you read into it, whatever you want, but... But that's, you know, that's what I do on the side to relax from conservation. A creative outlet. Yeah. When does yeah. that come out, John? Um, should be the end of this week. Hopefully the books will be from the printer, so... I don't think you should tell people it's not got wildlife in it. I mean, your sales will be a bit yeah, higher. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm bringing out another one later <laughs> on, which will have bird photographs in it, stuff like that. Cool. So, yeah. They're one of those animals, birds. If you don't have a good pair of binoculars or a good camera, it's hard to appreciate some of it, especially the smaller mm. species, isn't it? Yeah, the small ones, uh, you, you, all you see is this little dot up in the trees, basically, but when you get a good pair of binoculars, you start to see the beautiful colours in like partilotes or thornbills all look sort of fairly similar. They're sort of brown and yellowish or stripy or whatever, but, but the partilotes are beautiful colours, reds and yellows and dots and all sorts of stuff. But, uh, yeah, good pair of binoculars, you get to see all the plumage and all the marks and, and that, that way you can start identifying the different species and, you know, it makes life a lot easier than, you know. But, you know, your pair of good eyes will will see, you know, 90% of the birds quite well, you know, as long as you can get pretty close to them, unless they're water birds, which can be, you know, half a kilometre out in a wetland somewhere. So, yeah, good good pair of binoculars, camera or, or a spotting scope certainly helps. People love it. People spend a lot of time just hanging out, like, 
like the wetlands near us here, the Laratinga wetlands mm. in Mount Barker, um, there's over 150 species of birds yep. um, that visit that yeah. wetlands. And there's always people with lenses yeah. longer than your arms checking them out. Yeah, it's one of the probably the most popular man-made, if I use that word, wetlands in South Australia. Really, it's it's being so close to city to the city and they call it peri-urban area. It's, it's brilliant. You know, you've got yeah multitude of different woodland birds as well as wetland birds, and you've got about nine species of about the eleven species of ducks that. Uh, in South Australia that you can go and see at Laratinga uh, rare ducks like the freckled duck and things like that so Laratinga is brilliant if, if you want to go see ducks and a lot of the other sort of the rarer crakes and rails and things like that so definitely worth you know getting up there and have a look yeah I saw my first freckled ducks there and pink-eared ducks too yeah they're pretty cool yeah I, I, pink ears is funny because it's it's the little pink dots behind the eye and that only gets really bright when they're breeding so normally it's a bit hard to see and one of the old names for the duck is the zebra duck which kind of makes sense because when you see it it's got those stripes over their body and i often say to people who don't know much about birds i say what what do you reckon that duck's called and everybody always says zebra it looks like a zebra duck and i said they should go back to the old name of zebra duck because the pink ear is actually quite difficult to see um, but anyway, I don't, I don't get to name the ducks in the, in the, or the birds in the bird books. It's you don't. I, unfortunately, no, I don't. Ridiculous. No, I know. That's the, but they, Can you give not... us his name, John? We'll get him on. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's all different people kind of change the, the common names, and common names can change quite a bit. I mean, the scientific names don't really change unless there's a DNA change or some, something. You know, that's kind of happening quite a lot. And, in the animal and plant world but but common names seem to change pretty regularly so what my grandfather would have grown up with he would have called them zebra ducks at uh, you know and there's other birds that have all these old names i think one of the old names for thornbulls was called tom tits which you know and uh, there's the uh, Murray magpie in South Australia, which is also known as the peewee and the um, uh, mudlark it's its proper uh, common name, but it's got about five different names. Piping shrike. Pi- well, yeah. Well, it's it's not even a piping shrike because that's just a that's another name for a magpie, for a white backed magpie. And uh, I think we went down that road with the last Do discussion we? about <laughs> the the, the uh, South Australian learn, did you? Uh, the no. South Australian <laughs> logo. Yeah, South Australian <laughs> emblem is is actually a white backed magpie, and, and it's not. Uh, piping shrike's a very old name for a magpie, and it's nothing to do with the mudlark or Murray magpie. Nothing to do with it. Right, yeah, we'll touch it. on yeah. that next time as well. Yeah, we will. <laughs> uh, now, you've been doing some talks around the place about ducks, and, yeah, I, and I've noticed this, and I thought, okay, John's hot on his ducks at the moment, let's get him on. Yeah, no, I've like, always liked ducks. They, they seem like good people, ducks. Yeah, uh, yeah. if they were people, they'd probably be pretty cool. I mean, they do have a hot-headed side, you know. If you, you look at the old cartoons of Daffy Duck and things like that, they used to get a bit cross, but but uh, I love ducks I don't know I don't know why I just there's something about them that I've always liked you know they they seem to always look pretty friendly I mean they can get cranky but they just got a very benign looking look about them that you know they kind of waddle around and they kind of just cool in the water and and they you know they just they're just cool birds they always look so smooth and like satin yeah, you see well, them come out of the water, and they just the water just comes off, and they always look. Yeah, super well, that's because their feathers are all oiled. Mm. They, they, a lot of the water birds have an oil gland, and when they preen, they're actually preening like an oily substance over their feathers. So when they 
duck underwater, duck underwater. Uh, <laughs> um, when they dive underwater or dip underwater, I mean, the water then just beads off their feathers, like I was saying, the water off a duck's back. Mm. Um, and so, you know, it keeps them nice and warm, they're waterproof. You know, so that's why they always look nice and shiny and, and mm. slick. Now, how many different ducks do we have in Australia? Well, that can vary slightly, but there's roughly around about 20, 22 species. Some are vagrants, like a northern shoveler sometimes pops down from Indonesia and Asia, and you get the odd vagrant that just sort of stumbles into Australia, probably got blown in from a storm somewhere and thinking... You know, what the heck am I doing here? Or, <laughs> I was going to say something wrong with duck, but I thought, no, better not. Yeah. <laughs> um, you've got about 11 down in the southeast of Australia, 11 species roughly, and there's about another eight or nine up in the northern hemisphere, or not northern hemisphere, the northern parts of Australia. So in Queensland and Darwin, you'll get things like whistling ducks and you'll get garigonies and, and you'll get rajah ducks and pygmy geese because geese... And swans are part of the duck family as well. But then in the southeast of south of Australia, you've got, you know, I'll try and remember the ducks now. You've got the uh, wood duck or main duck, as it's known. You've got Pacific black duck, which is pretty common. Same with the wood duck. They're the ones you tend to see more around the city. The pink ear duck, which we just talked about. Freckled duck. Uh, the Australian shoveler. You've got the uh, Australian shield duck. Uh, you've got the uh, chestnut teal grey teal, you've got the uh, bluebill, the white eye or hard head, you've got the um, musk duck. I don't think I've missed one out there. No, that was 11. Was that 11? Yeah. Cool. Like one you said four times, but... Did I? Did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's old age is catching up there. Yeah, so about 11. But as I said, at Laratinga you can get to see about nine of those. So the ones that you generally don't see at Laratinga is the musk duck, even though they have popped in there from time to time. And the other one you don't really get there is the bluebill, from, even though they have been there occasionally, but they're not regularly there. Those musk ducks, I, I've never seen one in the wild, mm-hmm. but I've seen uh, pictures of them in bird books. What's, is it the mask with that big thing on his yeah, throat? Yeah, it's got, going yeah, it's on? got an iguana. Is that an iguana? Yeah, it's, got a, it's, got a, <laughs> it's got a little pouch, sort of pouch flap that hung, hangs underneath its lower mandible or its lower bill. People think, oh, maybe that blows up, you know like a frigate bird or something but it doesn't they actually shake it they seem to shake it and wobble it probably turns on the ladies you know that's probably to to attract the female one because the females don't have it um but the musk duck is just a bizarre duck they're they're what's called a stiff tail duck so they only have like five tail feathers that stick out the back and they sit really low in the water so you can, from a distance you can kind of tell them apart from other ducks because often you get quite a few species together. And so they stand out straight away because they sit so low in the water. And they're a diving duck, so they actually dive underwater. Um, same with bluebills and I think the white-eye dive underwater. All the rest are what they call dabbling ducks, ducks that go head down, bum up, and just dabble in them for food. So the musk duck is, is not a spectacular coloured duck. It's just sort of blacky, grey colour. Um, but they're just bizarre. Um, when they walk on land, their, their feet are right at the back of their body, so they stand up really high, and they generally don't like walking on land. Mm-hmm. So they tend to spend most of their time in the water. And if they're alarmed, they'll just dive underwater like a grebe and disappear and pop up somewhere else. But their mating, or the male mating call, is completely bizarre. They do this high-pitched whistle, and then they kick their feet out the back and splash. Like, could be two or three metres splash going out behind. And all that, they just do that all day long. And they'll do that to try and attract the female. 
And if the female loves what he's doing, then he's got a mate. But you, you, they're, they're not that common in sort of big open wetlands as such. They generally, like, if you go down the Ball Lagoon, they have a lot of, like, hidden little wetlands and they tend to be on their own. But also, contrary to that, they, they're also around the Kuron, around the, the barrages. Um, there's about 40 mustak that hang around the barrages and males and females and uh, if you're lucky enough to be in a canoe or a small boat you, you'll see them there and sometimes you'll see the males doing their their uh, performance to try and attract the girls and well it's really weird because you showed me that um that noise from the duck and to me ducks go quack quack yeah and john was showing me that no ducks make other noises than ducks that, make Steve. lots of different noises in actual fact i'll try and play i've got an app here which i'll play the must ducks call for you and um, this one, the call will be... Oh, that's its call. That's a duck. That's a duck. That's the musk duck, is musk it? Musk duck. Is that... That real... That's amazing. Oh. Now, it? when, it's, when it's in its mating thing, you'll hear that call with a splash when it kicks its feet out. So I'll play that. There is other birds playing in the background, calling in the background. So if you were just to say to me, what is that, Steve? I, that a duck would be beyond the last thing oh, in yeah. my mind. Yeah. I'd go through all the lizards and everything before I got to yeah. ducks. Like, no one associate that with a duck. How could you? Yeah, First time I ever heard strange. them, I was walking around Ball Lagoon and in this little obscure little wetland hidden by trees and tea trees, and you know, I had to push my way through the scrub. I heard that call and the splashing. I was thinking, what the heck is yeah. that? And the last thing I was expecting was to see a duck. Totally bizarre. And they'll do it all day long to try and attract a female. The other thing interesting with musk ducks is that, speaking to all my birding friends and stuff, to my best knowledge, no one's seen a musk duck fly. Now, they, obviously they fly. Otherwise, how do they get from wetland to wetland? And we seem to believe that they probably fly at night, which is not that unusual because a lot of swans fly at night, a lot of birds fly at night, move around. So we, I've never seen one flying during the day. Most ducks you see flying, you know, going from one spot to another, because these these uh, ducks don't fly to escape a predator. They just duck underwater. They just underwater and disappear. So. They must fly either early morning, late afternoon or in the evening where you know, generally people don't get to see them flying. So they're just a really mysteriously weird, bizarre duck and they're just fascinating to see. And the other stiff-tail duck... Stiff-tails are found all over the world. There's a few stiff-tail species found across the world. The other one is the blue-billed duck, which has the same sort of five stiff little tail feathers sticking out the back. It sits very low in the water but doesn't do anything particularly bizarre they've just got a blue bill when it comes into breeding their bill the male's bill goes a really bright iridescent blue and it's got a sort of a dark head brownie dark black head and a chestnut body and the females ironically do look a bit like mustard females but their bill is a lot longer more traditional duck shape whereas the mustard's bill is quite short and stubby but the mustard's are yeah they're one of my favorite weird ducks 
One of my favourite weird, weird ducks. ducks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it all um, ducks that dive? That, that do they all sit lower in the water? Yeah, is generally the, the diving ducks yeah. sit pretty low in the water, and that's the, their way of well getting food. They go down to the bottom of the of the lake or the pond and probably feed off the you know, the crustaceans mm. and bits and pieces on the bottom. So their buoyancy in general. Is probably yeah, and they probably don't have as much oil on mm. them, so they can get down deep enough. Um, whereas the dabbling ducks, you know, they they just set up a lot higher. Their feet are more forward so they can paddle more and then back to balance them when they go head down bum up so yeah are they all omnivorous yeah i reckon most of them are even though the dabbling ducks tend to eat a lot of probably a bit more vegetation and and stuff but they all will eat invertebrates to some degree the the pink ear duck which has got a sort of a shovel type bill quite a different bizarre shaped bill they have serrations around the edges so they tend to when they're under water uh, they will tend to pick up you know like uh, sh- little shrimps and you know little critters and creatures and catch them and crunch them up and eat them so you know obviously birds don't have teeth well not not the modern birds the archaeopteryx back hundreds of hundreds of thousands of years ago yeah. they had <laughs> teeth but that's another story if we're talking about dinosaurs and stuff but uh, yeah the modern day ducks they either have a flat plate bill or they have little serrations depending on the food source but they seem to be omnivores yeah, yeah they'll pretty well opportunistically eat whatever comes their way what other bird sounds have you got oh, okay there, i'll see what now um the freckled duck has a pathetic call. I mean, even though they're the most gorgeous <laughs> oh, bird, I mean, they've got freckles. So they're the rarest duck in the world. And they're uh, quite, well, they're Australian duck. There's about roughly 1,500 or so. Rarest duck in the world? Yeah, well, they're one of the rarest ducks wow. in the world, yeah. yeah. Well, you can see them here at the Laratiga Wetlands. Yeah, you do. Quite yeah, rattly, to 25 you? I've seen there. Yeah. They're a duck's head which is shaped like a ski shoot sort of thing. They have that classic daffy duck kind of shaped bill that goes down. And the male, the male and the females look exactly the same, but the male, when he's coming into breeding, his bill above the bill, it's called a sear, just above the bill, that goes really bright red. So that you can tell that's the male, the females don't have that. So when you see that red, you know they're in breeding mode. And they have a little top knot at the top of their head, so they've quite an attractive-looking duck apart from all the freckled patterning but their call was actually quite insipid to the point where it's hardly worth even calling that's it it's still like a cricket sounds like a cricket <laughs> so you think that's a bit sad that one you know such a beautiful looking duck doesn't have much of a call at all you probably if you're looking at ducks you know the classic duck call is you know this is one see if you can recognise this one I can do it it's close, it's close. <laughs> Is that a Pacific black duck? No, close. Yeah, that's the uh, wood duck. That's the wood duck. Or main duck is another name for it. That's the one you see sitting up in trees. It's grey with a brown head or spots on its chest. They're the ones you see around parklands, walking around the grass. Actual fact, they're actually related to geese. That's why you see them running around on the, on the grass and the ovals so much because their geese tend to be more of a terrestrial than actually in the water. And the little wood duck has quite a short little bill, which is more like a, a goose. 
So, and they're, they're quite weird because they actually breed in hollows in trees. So you'll see a duck up in a tree, which you kind of don't expect. And then they lay their eggs in a hollow. And then the little ducklings have to jump out of a, you know, 15, 20 foot tree and, you know, hit the ground rolling and just off they go. They're pretty resilient. So that's the classic sort of duck call. Then the other one that you talked about, the Pacific black duck, which is the, the one most people recognise, which is this one. <laughs> so that's, you know. See, that's a duck. That's a duck, yeah. <laughs> so that's the one that even domestic ducks tend to sound like that. So mm. that's the classic duck call. And the Pacific black duck is, is one of Australia's most common, or the southern Australia's most common ducks. And it's got the stripes, like the bandit stripes through its eyes. And, and the unfortunate thing with the Pacific black duck is that they are, they are loosely related to the mallard, the, the European northern hemisphere mallard, which was introduced to Australia and released here. And the uh, introduced mallard does interbreed with the Australian Pacific black duck. And sadly, in you know suburban areas and peri-urban areas, um, there's probably not many purebred Pacific black ducks left. And you know you're seeing a hybrid because the Pacific black duck's legs are generally sort of a lighty sort of skin colour. But when they've uh, interbred, often um, they're physically a little bit bigger, but also they have really bright orange legs, is what, which is the same as what the mallard has. So this is the one of the disadvantages of introduced species. They can interbreed with the native species and basically start to breed that species out. Which is Why would we have brought those in? So we, the Europeans. Well, you know, you're an Englishman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll blame Sorry. you. Sorry. We'll blame you. Was that uh, food? Or? Oh, yeah. Well, see, a lot of the early settlers, when they came to Australia, they didn't want to eat a lot of the... The Australian food, like mm. betongs, and they just thought they were rats, you know. So, you know, they didn't think that Australia's diversity of bird life, were, mm. you know, didn't have, you know, the calls weren't pretty or the plants weren't pretty enough. So they, you know, they, and also they, they bought stuff that they recognised. They, they could associate with, you know, rabbits mm. that, which they could eat, you know, the ducks that they were familiar with, the birds' calls that they were familiar with. I mean, it came from a country that was quite lush to, a, you know, this Australia, which was, you know, if you going out to the Mallee or somewhere it would have been like going to hell or something you know it would have been frightening and so you know by bringing a lot of these animals over you know it was just familiarity it's feeling like you're at home so um, that's why foxes were brought over as well well that was the gentry hunting. wanting to do yeah. you know, fox hunting mm. I think probably Adrian you know the story behind foxes being released in Melbourne in 1858 something it was about 15 released for a fox hunt and of course they didn't catch them all and wow. that was where it all started. I mean, other foxes were released, you know, soon after that. But that's basically where it all started. The gentry wow. wanted to do a fox hunt. Mm. So, yeah, it's quite sad, you know. You think all these introduced species, a lot of it was for familiarity or they just didn't trust a lot of the Australian wildlife. They didn't, it was strange to them. They didn't want to eat them. It's quite, quite mm. sad in many ways. It would have been so abundant early in the piece too. There would have been... So much more wildlife, you would think that you couldn't possibly impact upon it. Yeah, true. Until you put until you impact like upon foxes. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just going back to the wood duck. Yeah, nothing stranger than seeing a wood duck on a roof of a house. Oh yeah, yeah. Like that for me, that's really weird. Down at a uh, good friend of mine, Matt's house, he he has a nest in a mm. possum box mm. that's been that the opening's been chewed. Chewed open by galahs. Yeah, they do that. And, and yeah, they, <laughs> modi- they modify. And it's the same yeah. thing that the babies must have to fall out of that. Yeah, box they do. Under the ground, yeah. but yeah, every now and then you see him sitting up on his roof. 
Yeah. It's, it's weird seeing a duck sit on a roof. <laughs> yeah, it is. You don't expect them, no. you know. It's just like a daffy duck sitting on your yeah. roof. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I mean, a few ducks kind of get up in trees, but a lot of them just kind of make a low nest in the reeds generally, you know, or lay their eggs sort of almost, uh, almost on the ground, but they're hidden away in the reeds. So why the wood duck went up in trees, I assume it was to escape predators, because mm. they're kind of goose-related. They tend to feed around on the open grasslands mm. they were probably open to predation from you know the, the early carnivores that were in australia you know whether they be tassie tigers or tassie devils or uh, quolls um, dingoes um reptiles reptiles yeah goannas that's even though goannas can go up trees but you know they obviously thought oh well if we get up in a high enough we're away from some of those ground predators but yeah it's a strange one considering most of the ducks pretty well nest on the ground even the swans and geese all nest on the ground, you know, in the reeds, stuff like that. They fold reeds all down, so just one of those anomalies. They decided we'll go up a tree. As a kid, mm. we were always told by the adults, don't go near the swans because if they hit you with their wings, they will break your arm. Well, they can do, yeah. That's depends amazing. on your physical size and, you know, I mean, I may be, I mean, I've heard those stories too. I don't know of anybody who actually mm. has, but look, it, you know, it, all their powers in their shoulders and in their in their arms, which is their wings, and uh, so there's a lot of power there. And I have been hit by a pelican wing slap, and it does hurt. Didn't break my arm, but it, it hurt. So you know, a large goose like a magpie goose or a Cape Baron goose or a swan, if they smacked you with their wing hard enough, mm. uh, they, yeah, and they got you in the right spot, yeah, they could probably you know break your wrist or, or your, your lower arm for sure if you. Especially if you're a kid. If you're a kid, particularly, yeah, yeah it would give you a bit of a hard time. Yeah. But there's a lot of power there because they're, they're a big animal that has to get off the water. Mm. And so there's a lot of power in that across the shoulders with their, you know, with their muscles. Well, we were always told, one, don't go near them because they'll break your arm. And number two, you can't go near them because the Queen owns all the swans. Well, in England she does, yeah. yeah. Apparently she owns all the white, the mute swans. swans. That's a bit swans. weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You cut, you, it's illegal to go and touch yeah. a swan or... Or well, they shoot to kill one or something. England, yeah, that's their totem. I don't know. Yeah, it's weird <laughs> stuff. You know, that's one of those royal things. I yeah. don't know. I don't, that's not my thing. When we were at Warrawong, I was there one night, um, had a tour of a group of Germans, and we were looking for platypus, and there was no platypus, and it was dark, um, and I had my torch scanning the surface of the water, and there was a duck, and the duck started flying towards us, and I thought, I'll keep the light on the duck, because so it was coming straight towards us. If I keep the light on the duck... Everybody will know where the duck is and we can avoid it. Effectively, I was blinding the duck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it flew straight into the chest of this really big, tall German boy. I was flying. It wasn't... It, it was, was flying. It was flying, flying towards... And because and, the duck was just flying blind. <laughs> what was that duck that you've never seen fly? You think it flies at night? That was it. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it flew right into his chest and he was um, winded and he was like... <laughs> and I said, I should have told you to duck. It was it was wet from that duck too. It was wet. So that was a joke, was it? No, that was that was absolutely oh, true, yeah, yeah. but also a joke. But a tre- complete true story. I, I had a, wow. a similar one, not with a duck, but it was up at Yokomara, and uh, there again with, with the light. We're out doing the night walk that you used to do, and we had a pond out in the middle of Yokomara, and on a hot night you'd have bats, little micro bats, coming down, hitting the water and getting a small drink or catching. You know, an insect off the water, and I had these people standing next to me, and I was, I was, you know, had the torch on there, and I go, oh, look at the little micro bats, you know, coming down. Next minute, one, you know, 
ricocheted off the wall and smacked right this woman's face. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then she had to peel it off her hair. It was fine. <laughs> the nose flew off. But yeah, they yeah. So you've got to be careful with torches Confusing. and water and confuse <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I know, I'll get, shine the torch in its eyes. Good get, job, Adrian. Blinded. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you said ducks and geese and swans are all in the same family. Yeah, they're in the, I'll oh, give it a go, the Anatide the Dale family. I think you said it how, way better earlier. Oh, did I? Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a tank. <laughs> Anatide Day. Better? I think that's, someone will correct me, I'm sure. Every time. Yeah, yeah. So. yeah. Latin's not my favourite language, but I th- it's, I think it's pronounced like that, but I'm sure someone will correct it. I've never said the word, but I, I recognise it. Yeah. So, so we've got ducks and we've got things geese. like... What sort of geese do we have? Well, we've got two geese in Australia. Well, you've got those little pygmy geese, which are sort of like... they're, they're But they're in the du- sort of the duck category, a bit like wood ducks. But we've got two real geese, which is the Cape Barren goose, which is in the southern parts of Australia. And you've got magpie geese, which are found both in the northern part of Australia, particularly around... Um, uh, Kakadu and, and the Darwin area, and then you've got uh, magpie geese down the southern population, which is down near Bull Lagoon, and across the across to Victoria. I've seen them at Bull Lagoon. Yeah, there's about fourteen hundred, or could be more than that. Could be a couple of thousand, of them, if not more. Um, I was there about oh, two months ago, and I just missed them. Yeah, yeah, they they they're. they're pretty common down there and they move around a fair bit uh, they were a lot more common in the southeast many many years ago before it got cleared for agricultural stuff but they were reintroduced there many many years ago because they would have been probably wiped out in the early days of settlement but the magpie geese are, are part of the southeast you know australian um geese life so you've got magpie geese which are stunning looking birds black and white with the the, the reddish uh sear above their bill um and then you've got the Cape Barren Goose, which is grey, with a yellow bill. And they're very common around the lakes, Lake Alexandrina Albert, around Malang and that sort of area. Um, and it's interesting to them because they're sort of migratory within Australia because they breed on the, the islands off uh, between Tasmania and Victoria, Phillip Island, and the islands off South Australia. So during uh, winter they disappear to breed. And then they come back during our summer. So they're all coming back now. If you go around the lakes, High Marsh Highland, and if you go along the road from Langhorn Creek to Wellington, the Brinkley Turnoff, there's a loosened farmer there, and there's always about 500 out in these paddocks. <laughs> um, and a lot of birders stop there to, to check them out. But they're amazing birds as well. And the males and females look the same, and they tend to mate up and... And uh, yeah, beautiful goose. I love their colour. Yeah, that, very that nice colour. Soft grey. Yeah, they're and that, gorgeous. that's sear. It's like fluorescent yellow. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there again, like most birds, like that, that that gets brighter, you know, when they're coming into breeding. But both magpie geese and Cape Barren geese were very popular tucker for the early, you know, the indigenous people. That would have been good food for them, for sure. And and, and they still are up in up in Kakadu and and. Um, Arnhem Land, places like that where the magpie geese are found, they're, they're a very common food source for the Aboriginal people up there. There would have been so many more around, like, and you know, we've drained so many of these wetlands. Oh, like yeah. The southeast is a great example. Something like 95% of the southeast was wetlands and it's been drained. Well, they called it the Kakadu of the south. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was fabulous. I mean, they are doing some really good stuff. Uh, the trust, uh, the Glenelg Nature Trust, I think they're doing a lot of uh, reclamation and reconstruction of wetlands down the southeast, and uh, there's sort of new wetlands popping up all over the place down there. And 
it's fantastic because that's giving a lot of the, the wetland birds a you know, new habitat. But yeah, it would have been spectacular to see it prior to whitefellas coming down there. So we talked about um, the freckled ducks being yep. endangered. And so why do we have um, endangered ducks? What's the biggest threat for ducks? Uh, loss of wetlands, basically. Yeah, you know, we, Australia's gone through quite a few droughts and a lot of our wetlands have been drained all across Australia and a lot of ducks are, are sort of migratory. You know, they'll, they'll follow wetlands and, and the rains to breed, so they're opportunistic. So um, they're not always in one place. They'll move around. So And if we've lost a lot of our wetlands or, you know, uh, there's only a limited amount of water in Australia. Uh, so by losing a lot of our wetlands, then a lot of our duck species are declining. Even the common ones are, are declining. Um, I don't know, I can't remember the exact figures, but um, yeah, there's, a, there's quite a huge decline in a lot of our, our duck species. There are a lot of wetlands popping up though, yeah, which is, is great. I, mean, I know that uh, once upon a time when they'd make a housing development, you know, the sort of boggier ground, that'd be the cheaper housing. Mm. And now they, they make a wetland and they, they make an amenities area and they mm. charge a lot more for the houses facing that. Yeah, know, so they so get ironic. their money back. Yeah, so did, did they it is. used to do that? Cheaper houses because it was yeah. on bogland? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, when I was a kid, uh, I was brought up at Brighton and my grandparents lived out at Largs Bay. So we used to d- drive from Brighton, Glenelg, uh, Henley Beach, um, what's now West Lakes, mm. uh, West Beach through to uh, Lakes Bay, and, and there used to be the um, before West Lakes was built. It was all swamps. Wow, all swamps. It was huge. It's stunning now. It would have been a you know. I remember Dad saying it's just a stinky swamp, you know, but. It would have been a spectacular wetland with full of bird life and frogs and the whole shebang. Goannas and death adders. Well, everything. It looks now like it is completely man-made. It never existed as any sort of water there, but man-made with all these expensive houses around it now. Well, you're right. then. (laughs) Well, they built all the houses I didn't realise it was a wetland before Oh, yeah, it was a huge wetland. It was a huge wetland area. And uh, the River Trons used to run through it like an estuary. Mm. And... uh, and all that area that's just it's just gone and they built all the houses there and in the early days you know i think it was in the 70s i started to build west lakes some of the houses were sinking <laughs> no, it's a bit like that monty python sketch yeah. you know, build the castle build another one that sunk and put another one that sunk yeah. you know? and uh, so and they kind of had to build it up so and that so i guess the water there with you know the the is, is part of the, the, the swamp wetland. Oh. But sw- swamps became sexy when they called them wetlands. But then, you know, I was working as a swamps project officer a few years ago down the Flurio, and so the name swamp has become sexy again. So, but so many threatened species that are only found around swamps too. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Well, the, the swamps around um, the Flurio have uh, an endangered bird called the Mount Lofty um, Southern Emirin. Yeah. It's a subspecies of the one that's pretty common down the southeast. Um, so they're in the swamps down the, in the Flurio, along with a lot of rare plant species and, and a whole pile of other stuff. So, yeah, swamps are really important. Never seen one of those emu wrens. Always one or two. Yeah, there's got, spots where they're supposed to be. Yeah, you, if you go down the Mount Compass School to the swamp. That's where boardwalk. that boardwalk. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Go down there and hang around, and if you're lucky, you might see one there. Yeah, I was unlucky twice, but I'll give yeah. it another go. Keep going. Yeah. yeah, You know what it's like with nature. It will show itself when it's ready. Yeah. I like going, um, one of my favourite places to go and fish and to walk around as well is uh, Tolderol. Oh, yeah, Tolderol. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, down there. There's, that's nice. Yeah, Tolderol is interesting. Interesting place, yeah, full of snakes. Yeah, yeah. it's it's uh, it's uh, technically a game reserve, but uh, about 
uh, half of it, or just over half of it is actually conservation wetland. Mm. So it's a really important um, area for migratory waders that come down from the northern hemisphere. And there's about 17 bays there, and they're all at slightly different levels of water or mud, and mm. so they, you know, attract a lot of different waders, a lot of the other uh, wetland birds and ducks and stuff like that. So, uh, but also, it's it's probably the most prolific place for snakes I've ever been. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, absolutely. I don't, I don't even think it matters what time of year no, you go either. there. They'll, you'll see a snake. Yeah, it yeah, is. red bellies, yeah. Uh, tiger tigers, and, and browns. Eastern browns. Yeah. I think it's because there's a lot of frogs there. Mm. The frog, you go there at night, it's just frog, frog yeah. heaven. But yeah, you, yeah, you get out of the place. car there, you, you, you just see snakes constantly. It's pretty amazing. Mm. I mean, I'm not scared of snakes. I mean, I don't like handling them, but mm. unless it's a python, I like handling pythons. But but uh, yeah, you got to be careful there because there's snakes everywhere, and they're biggies yeah. too. Yeah, yeah, I should be careful. <laughs> you, you talked about um, migratory birds. I mean, there's a every bird's got a story, hasn't it? Like yeah. you, you, people just see a bird out in the water, thinking, "What a great life!" But mm. some of the things that some of these birds go through. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, some of those migratory waders, um, things like the uh, say red extent or the chart-tailed sandpiper, that has twelve thousand k's. Comes down from Siberia, you know, and comes down here to feed during our summer and goes back up to the northern hemisphere during our winter their summer to breed and it's they do it every year for you know 10 years or whatever they live for and it's just bizarre and and there's numerous bird species that do that you know they do it from asia to australia or they do it from canada down to you know the bottom of south america or they do it from from the arctic down through the mediterranean to africa you know these flyways where these migratory birds just go from summer to winter summer to winter you know for breeding and for feeding breeding for feeding and it's just a massive it's the biggest migration of any species in the world you know it's so incredible how they know where to go yeah, well, that's a sort of a science in itself. You know, that's kind of, you know, freaked people out for a long time. But they sort of seem to think that they either, they obviously use stars, they use the moon, they use the sun, they use landmarks. There's a whole bunch of different... Sat-nav. Use a sat-nav. Yeah, they've got little <laughs> GPSs you know, tucked away in their wings. <laughs> they hide it. Yeah, they hide it. Yeah, they've been fooling us all this time. Uh, yeah, so, and sometimes they have, you know, they seem to pick up the magnetic forces and all sorts of, you know, stuff. I don't, I can't really explain it, but, you know, they do some pretty cool stuff. But that sometimes they get thrown off course. You know, they in their twelve thousand k trip might be a massive hurricane, and they get blown off course. And that's where you get vagrants, and that's where the birders' twitches get really excited because something bizarre's rolled up in Australia that shouldn't be here. You know, <laughs> yeah. when, when we were interviewing Tim Faulkner, he said, didn't he, at that point, like, if I get a phone call at any point and there's a, a bird that I've never seen before has turned up somewhere. This mic just gets switched off. And oh yeah, I'm gone. yeah. yeah. Hardcore, <laughs> hardcore twitches. If there's something that shouldn't yeah. be here, uh, that people they're gone. Yeah. yeah, I'm not a twitcher. I mean, I love seeing rare birds, but uh, I don't just drop everything and run off and have to go see this rare bird mm. unless I'm in the area. Sure, I'll go have a look. But yeah, twitchers are interesting creatures. You know, a lot of good, a lot of my good friends are twitchers, so I won't bag them. But but they're they're an interesting um, form of bird. <laughs> it's a thing. Oh, there's, there's it's a thing. Yeah, there's herpet twitchers too. I've got friends. Oh, I'm that sure there is. They'll drive for miles and yeah. miles and not sleep yeah. all night looking for a, yeah. a python that they've actually got living in their lounge room. And, you know, a pet one. Um, and I get it. I love seeing wild animals. Me. Yes. <laughs> no. No. Um, no. I get it. I think it's great. But. Um, but I'm like I'm a bit more like you, John. If I'm away somewhere for a period of time, mm-hmm. having a bit of a holiday, doing this bit of bushwalking, bit of kayaking, whatever, and yeah, I'll spend the night going out looking for something that might be there too. Yeah. And 
quite often opportunistically you might even see one. Yeah, yeah. You know, but I, I don't need to see it. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, in South, South Australia, sometimes you'll get northern shovelers. You know, we've got the Australian shoveler, but this is the northern shoveler that's sort of pretty common up in through Asia and, you know, places like that. And uh, every now and then one will just get blown off course and it'll show up at the Kuron or down at High Marsh Island or somewhere. And, you know, all the birders go crazy. They want to go see this, this duck. And that's OK. That's fine. You know, I was in India 20 years ago and I saw thousands of them. So, you know, I, think, <laughs> I don't need to see it. I mean, yeah, it's cool that it's in Australia. But I know what they look like. I've already seen one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it just, it just depends. What, you know, it's a hobby for people who, you know, and, and it's, it's fine. It's great. It's funny. I, I, well, I said I went to Ball Lagoon recently. I saw a, um, I saw that, actually, that really rare legal lizard just out in the daytime. Uh, what is it over there? It's a Delma. I don't know. I'm not a mm. reptile person. I can't remember what it's bloody called. Anyway, I saw a um, blotch blue tongue. I didn't, okay. didn't think much of it. Took a photo. I came back here. Apparently that's pretty unusual to see a blotch blue tongue in um, SA, not oh, super right, common okay. I'm told and one of my mates he, he sat there and went, okay when did you see it yesterday mm, okay, and he, he was calculating his head could he be up there and back in time for yeah. work? Well that's the same as bird, that's the same <laughs> as bird twitching, you know, they'll yeah. work out, oh, I've got to fly to Queensland I've got to cat, hire a car, get out to this wetland out somewhere and it, you know, in the off chance that this bird's still around and you usually know where it is because there'll be 20 other birders in that corner of the wetland. Yeah. And, uh, and they, they get there, see it, photograph it, tick it off, that's it, done. Get I, back at the car, go Very back. addictive. Yeah. It is, I, yeah. I, I get it. And I told the story too, I think, on the episode with Tim Faulkner. Um, we were on Brobby Island one year and the, uh, we, we just happened to be there just, okay, we had binoculars, we were doing a bit of bird watching, a bit of everything, a bit of hiking. Mm. A laughing goal from, I believe, South America yeah. had blown over. Yeah. And there were yeah, bird goal. dudes... Everywhere. Yeah, goals will do it. Yeah, we do get, you know, sometimes we get a Franklin goal, or Sabine goal, or a laughing goal. You, you, you get, you know, there was one over at Port Lincoln. I think it was a laughing goal, which attracted a lot of attention. It hung around at the caravan park for ages, you know, this bird and the caravan park. And I loved it because people would stay overnight and, you know, <laughs> sort of built the economy around it for a while. You probably raised it. It's probably as though <laughs> don't tell anyone. <laughs> so, you know, it, but I think it's great that people take such an interest in nature, you know, for whatever their motivation is. And I think it's, you know, I think it's just cool that people get excited about, you know, going to see something that's a bit rare or, you know, that adds to their their love of nature. And Last time you were on, you said that a lot of younger people are getting into bird watching now. Um, have you seen that trend continue and has COVID made um, a difference in that too? Um, I, I think COVID, yeah, it's sort of young people are, but they sort of aren't either. They're kind of like, it's things can go in trends up and down, up and down, and sort of a lot of the hipsters were getting into it for a while, but they kind of, you know, they've moved on from the smashed avo and gone on to, they, I think they just chop and change to whatever's trendy at the time. But but I think COVID uh, has been interesting because people have been sort of at home more and they've probably taken more notice of birds. And I know BirdLife Australia had their birds in backyard thing only recently in the bird week during October. And uh, there was more participants than ever before because people have spent more time at home or they are work- mm. they were at home during COVID or whatever. And uh, a lot of them are younger people. So I think you know, anything like that. So maybe there's some positives that come out of a, a COVID thing that people start to hear birds more, see birds more. Hasn't been so many planes flying around, so they're probably hearing. And you know, it just things are different and they start to appreciate maybe the simple things around them. Well, um, it's great because I've, I've had people that I know 
that have gone to you know air peninsula york peninsula or, or right down south to kangaroo island and said oh place is amazing it's stunning normally they'd go to bali or yeah yeah something like that and they've gone this is this place is amazing like some of the places mm. yeah, well yeah <laughs> yeah well we knew that really? yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. i think it's, a... yeah, sometimes it does take uh, i get a bit of a disaster i go i guess to appreciate what's in your own backyard and mm. you know i think we're pretty lucky australia we've you know okay yeah we've got our environmental problems most definitely but but we've got some beautiful areas that are just stunning and uh, sometimes you know it's because the old the grass is green on the other side I mean, mm. if you just yeah grass is always green yeah if you just look mm. at your own country and drive around and take your time and i think there's some spectacular stuff to mm. see we're Even pretty we're pretty lucky some of the walks that we do just in local parks and that but just amazing absolutely and go you know toller roll yeah it's yeah beautiful to go and walk oh absolutely it's very easy walk it's yeah. all completely flat yeah um, absolutely yeah. and just the birds too like with parrots uh, you know i've done a bit of bird touring for a while a while a few years ago and you know you get a few americans or you know poms come over sorry english people come poms over. is fine his poms is fine <laughs> um and uh that's our word <laughs> and I- that, island killers uh, anything yeah yeah anything whatever. <laughs> uh, and they'll be blown away by the the amount of different parrots would have you know and we just take them for granted that if we go for a drive say from the hills down to adelaide you know we'll see seven or eight species of parrots not even think anything of it mm. but you know when you when you have an american with you and they sing galas or galas as they call them um and rainbow <laughs> rainbow galas, yeah, galas. <laughs> rainbow lorikeets and and sulfur crested cockatoos and and musk lorikeets and corellas and and now rosellas the adelaide rosellas or crimson rosellas eastern rosellas and they just go what yeah they can't believe these beautiful looking birds are just everywhere in the streets Yep. And most Australians just take them for granted. And galahs, if you look at them really carefully, are beautiful, beautiful, beautiful birds. They are absolutely stunning. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah, sometimes you just got to stop, look, and see what we've got around us. Yeah, it's quite amazing. A few years ago, I had two Americans that I was driving around. We was going to Cleveland and driving through bush and went for a few walks and mm. things. Um, yeah, exactly that. Like they saw a cockatoo and was just going, "Wow, look at that! It's just unreal." And then you get galahs, and I'm sort of just driving past. What are they? Oh, galahs! What? You know. I and mean, I guess the Americans say, "Oh, that's just a bear. You know, it's a grizzly bear. Or it's a raccoon." Yes. And I was in Central Park <laughs> over Christmas in, in New York, and and I was walking around and I was seeing these red cardinals, which are a pure red bird. They're just fantastic and blue jays which you know a pretty famous sort of bird around mm. the world blue with a crest and and you just kind of go this is stunning so wherever you are you know, they're all everybody's got their own special birds it's, it's just appreciating what you've got in your own backyard which yeah. is really important you know so if covid's made people stop take a breath sit back look what's in their own yard and appreciate well then maybe that's a positive thing out of all this who knows yeah. Yeah, good point. We were in New South Wales last year and we saw a flock of macaws. Remember that? <laughs> that was weird, wasn't it? <laughs> flock of macaws. A flock, a flock of macaws. macaws. Flying and, over the yeah, motorway. Why well, did they escape from the Melbourne Zoo? Did they? No, there's yeah. a guy there that owns... Oh, he puts lets them out and for he lets, a fly. He's allowed to let them out to Apparently fly. a very wealthy man. He's got several species and they wow. let him out in their groups and yeah. he's got people that fly as macaws. But they were a long way off and... You knew I was what they were. Going, yeah, the long tail. Of course. Yeah, the long tail. Well, just, it was strange. I didn't. 
I never mm. knew that I knew what a macaw looked like well, when it was flying, but it was so <laughs> obvious. the local Wichita Eagles like them. Yeah, well, I did <laughs> say that, didn't I? You yeah. must be probably take some one occasion. Yeah. I mean, it's a super obvious thing, but it just made me think if you're in South America, that would be that would be pretty normal, wouldn't pretty it? Pretty normal. Mm. Yeah. Well, the, the South America's got the most parrot species in the world, so that that's the parrot country. So of the we've world. got over fifty. How yeah, we're, we're pretty close. Oh, I'm, I'm not sure the exact number that South America's got, but be probably close to a hundred, if not more. Australia is sort of the second most common in the world for parrots, but certainly South American countries, they're they're the ones who take the cake for parrots for sure. We had um, John Reid, the pragmatic ecologist on the show, and he he does some work in the Solomon Islands. Yes, Solomon Islands. He was talking about a a finch-sized parrot that eats lichen. Yeah, how extraordinary. I think it might be the world's smallest parrot. We'll go and see him one day. He said we can go over there. He did, yeah. He'll, he'll take us over there. You just want to go see the... What is Solomon it, Island ground boa, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> John, he's the guy who did the cat. The yeah. Felixer. Felixer, yeah. He yeah. spoke at Birds SA, and uh, that's an amazing machine. Yeah. Amazing machine. An interesting guy. Yeah, mm. really interesting. Yeah, he came on talking about cats and, mm. and toxoplasmosis. I mean, that was yes. fascinating yeah. how cats have adapted to give this bacteria i'm not sure even what it is and it, and it, and it affects the its prey animal so it just mm. loses inhibition and just kind of comes out and just walks around in the yeah. and, it, and and obviously easy to kill yeah. but it affects people so people yeah, become risk taking it can affect babies i think it's it's a yeah i think it's yeah, one you, don't, you just, don't have a cat around a young baby particularly if the cat roams a lot because i'm not sure the whole thing but yeah, yeah. i just remember when my first wife was pregnant, you know, that you just, we were kept saying, don't have cats, don't have a cat around the baby, you know, because of toxoplasmosis and all sorts of stuff. So. I say that about snakes too, don't they, with salmonella. Yeah. And, and venom. And eating it. And being eaten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All the things, yeah. yeah don't have <laughs> a python in the yeah. cotton with your child. You know. Don't have a taipan near your baby. Yeah. yeah. But going back to, to like, concentrating your own local stuff, I, uh, there was a, um, a friend of mine who's a school teacher. He had two kids that were doing a project um, on the the planet and all the problems and that and and he he wanted them to call me they did like a conference call with them sat around the table and they were asking me a few different questions and their questions were all like um pretty much much based on like the uh the, the orangutans and pandas you know the obvious big ones that are endangered and that and uh, i just found my the whole thing that i said to them was concentrate and learn about your local Mm. wildlife don't worry about all the others yep if we worry about everything that we've got in our area and learn about that when you get older and and when you learn all about that you can transcribe that to other animals in other countries and learn about those as well but it's really important that you learn about your local stuff before you worry about orangutans don't get me wrong orangutan's my favorite animal i want to worry about it yeah but Learn about your local stuff now. Yeah, exactly. While you're in no, I, now. I have that sort of philosophy because I work in conservation, and, and Adrian, you guys obviously, you know, get the same feeling. It can get quite depressing mm. knowing, you know, that there's tigers disappearing or orangutans disappearing, or you know, you, you watch all these shows and, and you just get so depressed thinking, what can I do? I can't save the orangutan on my own, you know, mm. unless you go over and help or have bags of money. But what you can do is 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 act locally. You know, you look after your own species in your own country, make sure that they're okay. And then if you happen to have an opportunity later on in your life or whatever the situation, you're able to contribute to saving something overseas, that's fine. 
but overseas they're trying to do programs to protect that, get the locals involved yeah. in protecting them mm. you know through good ecotourism or getting local poachers who are now the rangers looking after gorillas or whatever uh, that's that's how you you know that's a positive stuff but at, you're right what we've got to do is we've got to look after our own species because australia's got the worst record for extinction in the world for mammals and a number of things look that 20 percent of our bird species are now threatened so we've got enough work in australia to look after our own species mm. uh, i can't save the tiger on my own i can donate money to wwf or whatever to help mm. But I put my energy locally. And as adults, we can swing out and help of other course you things can. If, if we can. If you're but in a as, situ- a, yeah. as a six, eight, ten, twelve-year-old kid, do, do you local get involved? Stuff, like, in- get your empathy for animals up with your yep. local stuff, and yep. then and then move Absolutely. on as you get older. Go help out mm-hmm. looking yeah. after the hood of plovers on the beach, or mm-hmm. you know, koala, or whatever, or you know, whatever the you know it may be, the bilby or, or your quolls, or yep. you know getting animals anonymous to come to your school to learn about the beautiful wildlife of Australia. Plant a a few bushes. There's a plug for you. Thank you, mate. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, act locally, Mm. for sure. Yeah, for sure. And I heard a story the other day, another animal company that go out and educate people, and they take animals out, and they have... You have a betong that you let out, hop round the floor, and everyone go, oh, look at that, they have a rabbit. And I said, rabbits are our biggest problem they were named the biggest pest mm. weren't they in australia because they eat the grass the bush yeah. the, the everything all of our animals rely on i did it's funny you say that i did consider because i've got the quoll over there in an enclosure people can look at i thought imagine if you had a cat in an enclosure and you displayed a cat and you talked about their magnificent animals it's in an enclosure you know just like an educational point of mm. a, well yeah. because they've got to be in an enclosure yeah it's good yeah. but why are we bringing kids up building a massive empathy for rabbits mm. No, it's true. What are you doing that Yeah, for? it's interesting, man, because, you know, when you look at rabbits, you know, they're in such of the, all the early sort of uh, folklore stories are in, you know, Peter Rabbit, they're in, you mm. know, um, all those early stories, Eden Blight and all the, all the stuff, Beatrix Potter and Wind in the Willows. I mean, I was brought up with those books. You know, it's because they're English books and well, we have English, rabbits in England. I know, I know. And look, the rabbit, the rabbit in its right environment is it's a beautiful, beautiful... Yeah. They are. But when they're put into the wrong environment, they're so devastating. It's like Australian possums being introduced to New Zealand. They've devastated the bird mm. life over there. It's, so it's just animals being put into the wrong environment. It could be an, it's like Foxes are stunning animals. They're mm. great survivalists, opportunists, beautiful-looking animals, but in the wrong environment. Mm. You know, put, they should be back in Europe and England where they, where they belong, not here. We're getting some good... Um, Background animal noises. Background animal noises. Yeah. So that's a cricket. <laughs> Sounds is it? like a, is it a cricket, cicada. I think that might be a cricket. Cricket. Sounds yeah. like a leaking pipe. Yeah. <laughs> that's the pond. <laughs> we did an episode at the Adelaide Zoo the other day, and that had some amazing um, captive birds. But it's, yeah, uh, there's, cool. there's a the um, bird you hear there all the time. Are the curlews? Curlews. Yeah, curlews are cool. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, you get some interesting calls in your background there. So, mate, you're going to be working at the Coorong now. So, for people that maybe are visiting South Australia that don't know about the Coorong, do you want to give a bit of a plug for the place? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I've been there for, back there for 12 months. I used to work there 10, 10 odd years ago. But Coorong's an amazing place. It's the end of the Murray River. Yeah, you've got an estuary where the mouth of the Murray, so you've got seawater coming in, freshwater going out, and then you've got this long stretch of uh, lagoons. North and southern lagoons, there's an iron bird flying over. Yeah, <laughs> iron bird. Iron bird. And so the north and south lagoons make up the Kurong, which in, in the Nutanjiri language is Kurak. That's its proper name. 
and uh, and it's it's basically a series of, of shallow uh, ponds which is home to a lot of migratory birds and wetland birds and ducks and swans and uh, over the years it's suffered a lot from the lack of water flows coming down the Murray so it's, it's got its issues it's got its problems um, but it's a beautiful mystic place of course Storm Boy written by Colin Keeley was based in there of course that's a famous film and been remade recently with Mr Percival the Pelicans the largest breeding colony in Australia of pelicans is down there one and of the most impressive birds they are I've ever stunning. been close to they're one of my favourite Pelican. birds pelicans yep. they're just the weirdest looking bird but they're mm. just gorgeous they've got so much character and personality mm. uh, so the Curran is a majestic place you know, even with its few problems um, but it's it's a stunning place I'm very privileged to be working down there and you know, doing programs to try and keep the Curran healthy but also to encourage people to go down and appreciate the mystical magic areas of the Curran and, and the stunning landscape that is the Curran and it, it's a beautiful place. Going up behind Salt Creek you've got yep. Messon Conservation yes. Park and Martin's Washpool yes. and they're just alive. With, I mean there's a lot of deer. Yeah, yeah, which there is, is introduced deer. Pretty impressive to see that to be fair. And they are, oh look they're amazing. We had, I was there the other day at Martin's Washpool because uh, we've been doing some uh, uh, fire breaks and stuff like that, you know because uh, it's sort of Mallee kind of uh, woodland country. And we're driving around the boundary, the other rangers and I, and we had these two fallow deer, just males, just jump over the fence. And they did it so eloquently, I was waiting to see Father Christmas on the back. You know, with the sl- <laughs> they just flew, like they were flying. They just flew over these fences. I know they're introduced feral animal and they do a lot of damage, but they were majestic to see. And it's too early for Father Christmas. And it's too early for Father Christmas. Mm. They must have been heading to the North Pole. But they didn't have the antlers, though. They, they, they were just starting. But, you know, we drove around for an hour or so and we saw Malifau, we saw... Um, a Heath Monitor, Rosenberger. Oh, oh good wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah nice it's been one. recorded. It's been, wow. uh, yeah. Uh, Angus, uh, the other ranger, he identified it as a Heath Goanna. At first I said, no, nah, it's a Gordii. And, and he said, no, 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 it's got the stripes going down to the end of the town, all the blah, blah, blah. And we got it checked out and recorded on the Goanna watch. And yeah, it is. So they're quite rare. So we saw that, and uh, what else did we see? Oh, the kangaroos and redneck wallabies. Mm. And, uh, see a wombat? A lot of wombats. Yeah, there's a lot of wombats there, the common wombats, because that's about as high as they come. They, Salt Creek's about as high as they come up towards uh, Murray Bridge. And it was just abundant wildlife in there, apart from the bird life. It's just spectacular. And, yeah, we're very lucky, you know. You, that, that area there has got some terrific parks. Messon's amazing. Mount's Washpools, you've got Tilly Swamp. It's just, it's, it's, a pretty, like, it's a pretty cool job. I mean, yeah, we do some crappy stuff at times, you know, which all rangers have to do. But, you know, when you work in a place that's pretty magic, you know, you, you pinch yourself sometimes. I come down to Lake Alexandrina, yep. which is so impressive. Yeah. It's huge. Um, and try and help out by taking some carp out every now and then. Yep. Yeah, good idea. Do my bit. Carp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a long story in carp itself, soup. that one. Yeah. Well, the Nor- and Northern Europeans love them. That's why they were introduced, you know. We had Faith Coleman on the show. Yes. Who you yeah, know. I know Faith. Yeah. She yeah. was talking about the carp ticklers. Carp ticklers. You know, the carp. Apparently, the, the carp release a hormone that makes the meat go all gross. And if you. This gentleman catches them, gives them a bit of a tickle, and they get all nice and relaxed, and they go to the fine restaurants. Well, that's well, that's why they were released here because they're they're a delicacy in Northern Europe, and here we just think they're rubbish. We just don't know how to catch them. Extra, and tickle them. I, I have extra eaten, line I have of bones. Actually, eaten carp soup, and it was delightful. Yeah, if it's cooked the right way, they can be actually really nice, but. You'd want to put them into a bath of yeah, that you, clean water. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I saw a bloke a once down at Finnis, and he'd <laughs> catch them. He had an esky about oh, 
foot and a half long, and he was only catching the carp that size. The rest he was leaving on the bank because you're not allowed to put them back Come in the out. Mm-hmm. And I said, why are you catching them that long? He said, oh, the big ones are too hard and too tough. The small ones are too bony. These are just perfect. They fit in my esky. They're the right size. I put fresh water in, flush them out, take them home, and then you slowly cook them into this beautiful soup. So mm. they obviously know how to look yeah. after them, how to eat them. I want to go to the Kurong now. Yeah, yeah, but yes, yeah, the, the the carp don't survive in the current because when they come out through the barrages, they don't like salt water. So they're mainly in Lake Alexandrina, but in the current you've got current mullet, which is lovely. It's mm. good kayaking, beautiful kayaking. Yes, it's one of the, but only kayak in the morning. Don't kayak in the afternoon because the wind picks up and it gets really hard paddling. I've noticed but, that. So do yeah, yeah <laughs> do your kayaking first thing in the morning when it's nice and glassy. Yeah. An amazing mullaway. Out yeah, in the, around in the, the mouth. mouth. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah, we we got some humongous yeah, mullet. Some good fishing along mm. it. If you're into fishing, yeah. along the beach, it's great fishing. Well, the seals come in now too, don't they? Yeah. They never used to. There's yeah. a lot of seals hanging around there. Yeah, now. you know, they're long-nosed seals or New Zealand fur seals, and, and they, they're common from New Zealand through to the, Australia's southern uh, ocean. And they were very common back in the early days until the sealers came and basically wiped them out, and their numbers are just getting back to what they once were. Mate, thank you so much for coming on once again, John. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you and talk to you. And, um, it's always to, great to follow your journey. Yeah, that's OK. It's a pleasure talking to you. It's, it's great having a good chin wag about stuff good. and just, you know, ad-libbing along and talk, you know, go off on little tangents here and there about other stuff because it's not just birds. I love all nature, so it's, it's good that we can talk about other stuff as well. Beautiful. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah, me too. All right, guys, thank you for listening. Thank you.